we are the image of God, that is, we are his physical representatives, so that we can rule over creation on his behalf. The Bible is made for this. Like It talks about supernatural entities that are real, that, that aren't imaginary, and I think the church has to wake up to this. Do you think that whenever she came out of the water, the water, that there was a, a, a demon came out of her? It's like, I can understand that because our human nature is to, you know, take the blessings that God gives us and then forget about them tomorrow. There is an intelligence at war against them. And I think what I'm suggesting is that there are still intelligences that we're at war against. I really like what Dr. Michael Heiser said a lot, is that God's, God's desire is to dwell with mankind forever. All of the nations in the world have been assigned a particular overseeing guardian to watch over them. And, but that in particular, the nation of Israel has been designated to be solely God's chosen nation. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. But our enemy has not laid down their arms. Their power is broken. Christ is King, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, mighty and awesome. I was at one time the fastest sword driller uh, in the county. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Two Trees Podcast. I'm John Dillon, and I am not here with my usual friends because, again, they have lives and don't always include me. And so what I do have for you is a blessing. It's exciting. It's the best thing that's going to happen in your week. We have with us Emily Dixon, the host of Faith and Other Oddities. She's been a teacher at a local college. She is the queen of memes and lots of wonderful, fun things in her life, and she's just really uh, been open and talking with me here for quite a while, but it's time to get to the podcast. And Emily, welcome to The Two Trees. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I, I don't know. I'm feeling a little pressure after that kind of buildup. You know, you, you keep the expectation low, so then people can be surprised. No, no, no. We're raising the bar, and you got to jump over this bar. This is actually the second oh. time we've done this because I stink at podcasting, and I recorded it, and it was not usable. So I sent it off to Josh, my good friend, and he said, this is terrible, John. Please do better. <laughs> and so I contacted Emily and she said, you know what? I think I have time. I will go through it again with you. But um, <laughs> Emily has a, a podcast that she and her brother do. It's called Faith and Other Oddities. And uh, it's, uh, it's a fun exploration. I really liked uh, the cycle that you did on the judges and on David's story and things. She's done some wonderful stuff in Old Testament uh, background. And if you like reading your Old Testament, you should definitely pick up faith and other oddities. But uh, we were chatting a little bit. I think we started talking about Pharisees is really what kicked off the story. But uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, connections in the Bible. And you pointed out a really interesting mm -hmm. one that I hadn't ever really thought about before. And it's a connection to the book of Samuel, specifically his mother, Hannah, and the woman mm -hmm. at the well. So I'm going to try to step out of your way here because you've already had a practice <laughs> round of this and you were really good. So Right. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. No, I I do love the Old Testament. I For me, um, that is the bread and butter of all things enjoyable. That and, and yes, I know the Gospels are good and they're essential and I'm not downplaying that, but the stories of the Old Testament, man, there's so much in there. Yeah. And they just explode the New Testament. When you see where they interconnect, yeah. So, uh, goodness, I've got to trust my notes this time, because last time I think I'd been away from the mic for so long, I just was like a squirrel on crack running around, just <laughs> happy to be doing this again. So uh, maybe a little bit more orderly and able for people to follow me. So i uh, talking about the connections. So, you know, one of the ways that we look for connections in the Bible is through vocabularies. And, you know, if you've been in church very long, there's the word study craze that's gone around. And then that's 
kind of okay, but let's let's be real. That takes you down some crazy roads that don't need to be taken. And especially if you're using your strongs, it, it just don't do that. Um, we could talk about that later, but <laughs> anyway. But then the other connections are themes and geography. And so I think that we need to be looking at our Bible more for themes and we need to be looking for things greater than just a single word connection. And so that's the thing that I love to dig into. Um, I think it's kind of become something that people expect from me because it's amazing the meat that comes out of it. And the Bible does this for three very very good reasons that we have these interconnecting stories, these kind of retellings, if you will. One is to complete a theological thought that's presented in the various accounts. It kind of fills out the picture, rounds it out for it. One of them is almost the same thing. The same thing. It's to complete, kind of give you those missing pieces that maybe you didn't see in the the first reading. And the third is to subvert the original reading. Because sometimes if you take a story, and my favorite example of this is like Adam and Eve, where God says, because you listen to the woman, God gets onto him and there's issues there. But then you go over to Abraham and Sarah, God tells Abraham, hey, listen to the woman, listen to your wife. She's going to tell you the right thing. So the Bible really subverts that idea of don't listen to the woman and makes it absolutely, you need to listen to the woman. And yeah, and I think so the cool I, part of that, and it's it doesn't fit like the real fast bumper sticker answer, but it isn't saying like mm-hmm. women are always right or women are always wrong, which is how, like, can you recognize wisdom when you hear it or not? Can you recognize exactly. that this is a voice of truth and that this is a voice that isn't? And I think in our culture where we're so enamored, especially right now with gender and and who are you and what do you identify as, we can boil mm-hmm. these these stories down into you are just your sexual orientation or you are just your gender, rather than to right. to listen to people as images of God in, in their own right, whether they're male or female or Gentile or Jewish, and to say, listen, is this wise? Are you able to tell the difference between wisdom mm-hmm. and foolishness? Adam surely knew, okay, this is a bad idea. <laughs> And Abraham should have also been able to to tell the difference between what was going on as well. So I just I thought that was a, a really important thought. And so I'm not going to jump in here a whole lot, but I'm going to throw a big amen oh, no. behind you there. <laughs> yeah. You know, what what I my personal theory. Now, I mean, again, this is my personal theory. I think Adam just stood back and let Eve do what he didn't have the guts to do. Just my thought. I could be wrong. But what I do love about Abraham and Sarah's story in particular is that God tells Abraham to shma, listen with the intent to obey. And if you know the foundational prayer of Judaism, which is also called the shma, God's telling Abraham to listen with the same intenseness that and intentional uh, intentionality is that word? Uh, it is uh, now. But yeah. That. <laughs> But there's that overlap. And so what the Bible does, it says the shallow, incomplete reading of Genesis 3 is insufficient to build your life on. So we're going to provide another parallel account, Hmm. and we're going to flip it. There's a great book um, that I forgot to mention last time by Judy Klinsner called um, Subversive Sequels. And it's written from a Jewish point of view, so you aren't going to get, you know, Christian theology. But as far as the Old Testament work, it's fabulous. And she goes through several stories where a foundational principle is laid, and then God comes in with a second story and either corrects or completely subverts what was originally seems to be the intent. And so, um, yeah, it's we don't realize we do this. Now— when I'm looking for connections between stories, I my personal guideline is I want at least three points of connection. You know, I'll, I'll contemplate two, I'll muse over one, but to really say, hey, this story is connected to that, I want three really good, solid hooks into each other. And so because we have some issues when we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament— Sometimes those hooks aren't really obvious. And so I just thought, you know, as we were talking, I kind of go through my process of how I realized these two were connected. Because 
I want people to know how to do it for themselves and how not just to hear this and go, oh, that's cool. Listen to what Emily said, but you can actually take your own Bible and sit down and go, how can I apply this? Right. And so it's, I think that's part of teaching. I think that's an overlooked part of teaching that we need to be more intentional about as Christian teachers is how do people take this home? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. One of and the first just, connections. I cut in here, but for any pastor who's listening, that's good advice. Listen to the woman. Uh, she's got she's got <laughs> things to say here. It's it's one thing to say things in your congregation or your Bible study or whoever, and they come away and they think, "Wow, you are smart. You saw something really cool in there," and they'll take your word for it. Yeah. It it is a success though when you have taught your people to do the same, and you are then yes. giving them their Bible and saying. Uh, we're going to talk about things that I'm noticing, but what what are you noticing? And and to not be, mm-hmm. don't be greedy is what I'm trying to tell you. Don't try to steal <laughs> all the thunder for yourself, but encourage people and celebrate when people are digging into the word and seeing these things for themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I love how Jesus ends his parables. Uh, he who has ears, uh, let him hear. And the idea is mm-hmm. the same. This is for all of us to be thinking about and to be digging into. Yes. And so when you brought this up, the yes. connection between the woman at the well and Hannah, I realized that I had a very shallow view of Hannah. And the more after you talked about <laughs> it the other day, I realized I had a really narrow view of Hannah and her story. I really just saw it as like the kickoff for the Samuel story. Mm-hmm. And now the ball game is underway, and I, I failed to recognize the tremendous importance that's that's going on here. So, would you kind of walk us through uh, yeah. not just what it says, but how you how you notice these? What kind of things should people be looking for? Well, the first thing that I noticed was that, of course, they're both women. Uh, but to really get beyond that, and this is why you've got to know your your Bible stories. If you're new to studying the Bible. Just get in there and start reading the stories. Get familiar with the basic plots. If you have to get a children's Bible that will lay out the bare bones of the most significant stories, do that. There is no shame. You've got to start somewhere. But then as you grow, you begin to start looking deeper. And now I'm not going to read Hannah's story because it's far too long and there's a lot of stuff that I want to include. So I'm just going to give a brief synopsis. Uh the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible is laid out differently. And in the Christian Bible, we have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then First Samuel. In the Jewish Bible, you're going to have Ruth over with the writings. She's going to be in a totally different section. So you're going to have this beautiful flow from the book of Judges into First Samuel. And a lot of scholars are now saying that they believe that Judges through Second Samuel, even Second Kings, were one book, that they were not meant to be broken up. So now you can put Hannah in context. Hannah shows up after a horrible time in Israel. Israel has gone from the point where God is walking among them, embodied in the angel of the Lord. He is fighting battles on their behalf. He's having conversations with them. He's directing them to saying, not going to go with you anymore because you aren't doing what I'm telling you to do. And During this time, we watch women, when the angel of the Lord is among them, they're actually talking, they have voices, they have names, they're participating, possibly even up to participating in the battles themselves. That's still speculative, but that would be interesting to learn more about. But as the story progresses, the women lose their names, and then they lose their voices. And at the same rate, if you follow the progression of God being actively, physically present with them and speaking to them, he also begins to disappear from the story. His voice is heard less often. We don't have his name used as often. And it mirrors the same thing we see happening to the women. And at the end of Judges, we have this horrible account of the Levite and his concubine. If you've read that story, you know it's probably one of the most gruesome stories in the Bible. A woman is brutalized by a bunch of men in the village. Her body is dismembered and sent out. This leads to a civil war in Israel. The tribe of Benjamin is almost completely decimated. There's no women left for them to marry and to continue the bloodline. And so the elders of Israel think the solution for this is to authorize two different abductions of women to be their wives. And 
we're talking hundreds of women here. This isn't just one or two women, which would have been terrible. We're talking hundreds of women being forcibly removed from their homes to become the wives of strangers. And so when you realize that this is what's going on in Hannah's time, and actually Hannah would have been related to this concubine that this happened to. She may have known her. She would have um, has shared experiences with her. This woman would not have been unfamiliar to her. And so Hannah breaks on the scene. She has a name, she has a voice, and she has a purpose. And this is completely counter to everything that's gone before. And so you're supposed to set up and pay attention. If you've been reading Judges straight through, she's, she's a significant figure because you see, wait a minute, here's somebody who I'm going to learn something about. She's not going to be somebody who's acted upon. She's actually going to take action. So what we find out about Hannah very quickly in the first book of Samuel, this is in the first chapter, going to the first half of the second, that she is one of two wives. She's childless. She's from the hill country of Ephraim. She is in anguish, and she goes to Shiloh, and she just pours out her heart to God to protest, one, her childless condition. Yes, that's in there. But also the brokenness of the system. Temple worship, oh, it's not temple worship at this time. It's the tabernacle. Worship at the tabernacle is corrupt at this point. We have to remember Shiloh is the place where a lot of these women were taken. 200 women were taken from Shiloh to become the wives of the tribe of Benjamin. Shiloh's uh, spiritual leadership, totally corrupt. This is Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, his two sons. And so there's major issues in that. And Eli, you kind of get the sense right off the bat there's an issue, even though we don't have a specific sin. Because when he addresses Hannah, the first thing he says to her is, you know, are you drunk? What's wrong with you? You know, He doesn't read good intent or any kind of hope into her situation. He And when she explains to him and says, you know, don't think I'm a worthless woman, literally a daughter of Belial, don't think that's who I am. He placates her and says, you know, God's going to give you what you want. Just basically get out of here. So she becomes pregnant with Samuel. She honors her promise to return the child back to God. And this is our first real tip-off. This is not about Hannah having a baby. She is not looking just to have a child. She is looking for a way to participate in fixing the broken system, a system that is run by men. So how does a woman of her time do that? She raises a son. She provides a son that's going to be dedicated to the purpose of changing the system. And we little side note, if you look at her promises about her child, there's good reason to speculate that he may have been even a Nazarite because no razor will touch his head. So that's part of the Nazarite vow. So it's very likely that from the moment she set out to do this, she was very intentional about what she wanted to bring to the table, which was a son who was going to be completely devoted to God. Contrast that with Samson, whose mother had to be told, you're going to have a child who's going to be a Nazarite. And Hannah's saying, no, I, I will volunteer for the mission. So she brings Samuel back. And when she brings Samuel back, your Bible is probably going to say she prays. Uh, that's what most of the headings say. But if you read that, what her words are, and this is in First Samuel chapter 2, she is not praying. She's not asking for anything. She is declaring what's going to happen under God's leadership and rule. She is looking forward to future events. She's not praying. She's prophesying. And she prophesies a complete upset of the status quo. She says that there's going to be, um, the proud are going to be broken. The strong are going to be brought down low. The hungry are going to be filled. The lowly are going to be lifted up. She goes into this long description of all of the reversals God's going to do, but then she ends her prayer or her prophecy with something very pivotal. And you're probably going to miss it in the English because of the way it's translated. She says in verse 10, the Lord will anoint the horn of his, uh, the Lord will strengthen the horn of his anointed. That word anointed there is Mashiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, Messiah in English. She's the first 
person to prophesy that God's Messiah is coming. Nobody else has had this honor before Hannah steps up to the plate. And I, when I learned that, I was in my mid-20s when I learned that. And I just, I mean, explosions in my head, brain, and heart. Because women were not presented as having a pivotal role in something like prophecy. I mean, yeah, there's Deborah, but how often do we hear um, sermons downplaying what she's done? Where Hannah... I mean, there, there's nothing bad ever said about Hannah. And she is an amazing study because she is the best case study for women in first. She's the first person to address God as the Lord of hosts. He's the leader of this army. He is the one who fights on the behalf of his people. How important is that to a woman who knows that her very life and condition is constantly under threat of men making bad decisions? Right. And to say there's a God who's going to fight for me. Uh, there's women today who need that message. Mm. And I know I was in that situation once, and that's a long story. But, you know, she's the first person to go to God, to go before the Ark of the Covenant and offer a spontaneous, intimate prayer. And, and how, because of this— Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, how beautiful oh, is it that, you know, the promise was given to Eve? And then we find yes. the first proclamation, really, of that phrase of Messiah coming from a daughter of Eve uh, is, I Absolutely. think, it's, it's, it's so rich and poetic. And I, sometimes I, I think God is quite the artist in how he's put not oh. just the world together, but in the way he's woven events together. And he said, this is, this is the, the voice that I'm lifting up to say this. And I just think it's cool that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's amazing. And when you realize, I didn't intend to go here, but there's this beautiful symmetry too, because Eve sees that the fruit is good. She sees it and she takes it. Hannah's living in a time where when women are seen as good or desirable, they're taken. And so there's also this kind of reversal of that because there's actually a thread throughout the Old Testament where Eve, as a woman who sees and takes what is good, her daughters become the ones who are seen and taken because they're good. And so Hannah begins this reversal, and um, we really see it. The first big pivot on that was Moses' story because his mother sees that he's good, and she takes him and hides him. And it's the first time that happens with a man. So it's there. there is this beautiful symmetry that, God weaves into the the story that unless you're taking time to chew on each of the words and and really process through, you're probably going to miss it. But it's there. And, you know, people who tell me their Bible study is boring, like you aren't going deep enough. You're skimming the surface. Slow down. Quit worrying about getting through it in a year. It doesn't matter. I promise you there's more if you'll just take some time. So... Yeah, but because of Hannah going to the the tabernacle and praying like this, the rabbis actually uphold her as the model for prayer, that this is the person you should emulate. You should pronounce pronounce your words. Your mouth should be moving. You should um, not be distracted by what's around you. And yes, even to the point of appearing like you're drunk. And so, now I don't know about that part, but I do think it's interesting that and a society that is very patriarchal and known for the elevation of men, that women provide the pattern that all the men follow. She's the first to announce the coming of the Messiah, like we said before. And those three things are huge. <coughs> Pardon me. Allergy season in Oklahoma. So uh, because uh, she is a woman and because she is somebody who practices these first, I was having a conversation, and I realized Hannah was the first to prophesy about the Messiah, but it was the woman at the well who was the first to announce that the Messiah was here. And this kind of sent me on this this crazy um, little journey with Scripture. It actually took me a few months to to really dig in and do it, and your invitation actually is what prompted me to like, go ahead and put the pieces together, uh, kind of an act of faith, hoping that there was something there after I said, yeah, this is what I want to talk about. Um, so we're told in John 4 uh, that Jesus has left Judea to return to Galilee. Uh, the Pharisees are upset that his disciples have been baptizing people, 
And the ESV says he had to pass through Samaria. The Greek word there is a day. Now, John is really good about telling you how he's using the language. And, and this is one of the things I appreciate how John uses the Greek. He says in chapter three that this word um, day or a day denotes a theological imperative. He, he's made it very clear that this is not just you have to do something because there's no other options. It's no, there is a divine appointment. There's a theological um, imperative that needs to be ful fulfilled. So if you go back to Jesus's discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus says, you know, the son of man, uh, you must be born again. That's that same word. It must be, it has to be done. It, it cannot, it's not something you can skip. And then he says that the son of man must be lifted up. And John the Baptist said that he must decrease and Christ must increase. Again, we, the, it has to happen. So when it set, when John tells us in chapter 4, Jesus has to go through Samaria, he's saying, hey, listen up, something big's getting ready to go down. You need to be paying attention. And so he goes through Samaria. We're given this crazy amount of geographic information. We know that he's near the town of Sakar. Uh, he's in the field that Jacob uh, gave to Joseph and that Jacob's well is there. So immediately we should be paying attention. Anytime the Bible gives you what seems to be a lot of redundant information and it's kind of like, okay, yeah, I get the point. No, stop. That's like a red flag. Pay attention. Something's going on there. There's a reason. Now, it took me a few days to remember that little principle when I was studying this. So but it's always true. So We'll run through the rest of the story right quick, and then we'll come back and pick up the pieces. So he's weary. It's about the sixth hour. This is about noon. This is the normal time that people start to get hungry and thirsty. There's a lot of stuff talked about this woman who comes to the well at the sixth hour because she doesn't want to be seen with the village women. I have lived in houses where you have to go get water. You go get water when you need water. I, I think sometimes we, we put too much significance on just the way people lived. And we don't pay attention to actually the important stuff the Bible's trying to tell us. But um, she she goes and she gets this water and Jesus asks her for a drink. And this is a bit of a scandalous situation. We have a man and a woman alone that we were told specifically the disciples aren't there. And they're having a conversation. And I love her response because like so many New Testament women, she pushes back. And if you ever notice, New Testament women are not these little demure creatures. Uh, when the angel approaches Mary, she's like, whoa, 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 this isn't possible. When, at the wedding of Canaan again, Jesus says, you know, my time's not come to change this into wine. And Mary's like, uh, excuse me. Again, there's so many examples and, and they're fun to look at. And I think so many Christian women need to know that. And being quiet doesn't always serve us well. So she she pushes back and she says, how is it you, a Jew, that's what the ESV has, but more specifically, you, a Jewish man, ask for a drink from a woman of Samaria. She, she set two hard boundaries. Number one, you're a man. Number two, you're Jewish. I'm a woman and I'm Samarian, a Samaritan. We do not talk. We do not mix. Why are you talking to me is basically what she's saying. And then Jesus says, hey, if you knew who I was, You'd ask me for a drink because I could give you living water and you wouldn't thirst anymore. And a lot of the commentaries that I read made a huge deal about this living water and about the idea that Jesus was announcing something completely new, something that this woman would not have understood. And that's not the truth. Okay, Let, let's just lay it out there. That's not, she would have completely understood what living water was. And the Samaritans kept the Torah. That's the first five books in the Bible. You want to confuse a group of Christians, ask them sometime how many people have read the Torah, and they'll tell you, oh, no, I've never read it. Okay, first five books of your Bible. So don't fall for my um, awful sense of humor. Uh, they, uphold those laws with great precision and great attention to detail. They want to get it right. And this included back in Jesus' day. Matter of fact, we have from the Tosefta Mikavot, it says that 
Sumerian territory is clean. Its ritual immersion pools and dwellings and paths are assumed to be clean. So even the Pharisees, the rabbis of Jesus' day and shortly after, considered the, the Samaritans to be so faithful in upholding the Torah that they didn't feel like they'd be polluted by being part of the Samaritan observations. And so that ritual immersion pool there that they were talking about, that's filled with living water. It's water that's clean. It's water that's flowing. It's water that has not had a chance to get stagnant. And so this is what's necessary in order to complete the ritual immersions that were ordered under the Torah. And the Jews in Jerusalem, they practice this. Jews today still practice this. And you can go and immerse yourself in the mikvot. And it's this idea that as you immerse yourself, then it, symbol, it symbolizes that the, any kind of brush with evil that you've had has now been removed. The, the stain of death ha, has now been taken from you. And that's either, you know, we're talking about illness and disease, touching a dead body, mold, uh, the missed opportunity for life in a woman's period. All of these things, the, the stain has to be removed, that, that brush with death needs to be taken away because the highest value under the Torah is life. And I think we forget that, that you know, all the rules that God had in place are meant to point us to a celebration of life. And so this woman would have known exactly what he was saying. So I, I saw a look on your face. I didn't know if this no, was like... No, hey. I think it's fascinating <laughs> just that here's a group of people, again, who are marginalized who are not considered mm -hmm. to be uh, friends of the Jewish people. And honestly, they, they weren't friends of the Jewish people. Uh, no. Or later on, uh, in, in many ways, of some of the Christian communities that were around. There's a, a really awkward situation that happens in Bethlehem with a, with a riot and the burning down of one of the churches. But uh, the, it, these are mm -hmm. the people that Jesus makes the hero of, of his parable. It's the Samaritan who cares uh, for, the, for the wounded man upon the road. And it's this connection yeah. to place and viewing people as, even if they are marginalized, those are the ones that Christ came to strongest. He is flipping over tables yes. in the temple uh, because they're cheating the, the people who are the poor uh, at the selling of the, mm -hmm. the turtle doves and things. And so it's, I think it's just so beautiful and, and important to focus in on on not just what happened, but why did this happen? Yes. And to see the, the settings of places and who exactly is this person and, and how, how does it remind me of past stories? And I think some people get mm -hmm. turned off by these things and they're supposed to be pulled into the story deeper. And, and you may not be able right. to say, okay, I now know this is a fact, but your imagination should be intrigued and to say, well, look at this. This is, this is lovely. This is, I think I understand this story clearer because I'm seeing it through the lens of Hannah or the, the woman at the well. These are things that are supposed to enrich your reading, not supposed to be just memorized facts and move along here, fellow. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else to see. Well, and how many of us, it was so simplified. They just didn't get along. They had a religious difference. And, you know, religious differences aren't a huge deal in our society today for the most part. And so we aren't given the, the depth and the scope of what this, this looked like between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, not only was there the, the separation in where they, they worshipped in Jerusalem and Jerusalem, the Samaritans would go put out the signal fires indicating when the, the, holidays would start, when the new moon feast would start, and or they would light them at the wrong times. I mean, they were deliberately trying to sabotage the Jewish form of, of worship. Uh, they threw human bones into the temple. So the temple would have to be totally shut down, cleansed, purified before they could resume. This was not, we. this wasn't, you know, a disagreement on theology. This wasn't even a Calvinist and Armenian going at each other online. This was beyond that. And I mean, we've seen how ugly those can get sometimes. Um, this is this was life 
impacting kind of rivalry. Mm -hmm. Like it, it impacted where people ate. It impacted where people slept. I mean, it was not just, we have a philosophical difference. It, it, there's an issue here. So the fact that Jesus is actually talking with her, this is a big deal. And I think sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, he's just being nice because Jesus is nice. No, he is stepping over a cultural taboo and saying, I don't care what everybody else thinks about the situation. She needs to hear the truth. Hmm. And I think that's something we need to adopt with our life. How many times do we see someone and go, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to deal with that person because they aren't as rich as I am or they don't dress as well as I do. Maybe they don't smell as good as I do. It, it doesn't matter. And we, we've got to get over that. I mean, if Jesus could put a, put aside the, the, the violence that was going on between the two people to reach out to her, we can get over a Facebook debate. We can get over a Twitter war and actually be nice to someone. So um, the woman, she, she goes back. She kind of deflects for a second, but she points to, hey, the shared history, our father, Jacob. This is his field. This is, you know, she makes sure that, yeah, there, there's, there's some differences, but maybe there might be a point of connection. And then she demands to know, does Jesus think he's greater than Jacob? And if you haven't studied the story of Jacob, and I wish we had time because I've been doing some study on that on him recently, man, Jacob's story is so rich and so dramatic and um, you got to love him. Any man who sees God and says, I'm going to wrestle him. Come on. Uh, you got to admire that. So Jesus explains to her, uh, you know, whoever drinks the living water, he's never going to thirst again. And like I said, most people will get hung up on that point. But then Jesus says, Hey, why don't you go call your husband? And she says, you know, I don't have a husband. And he, he confirms, yes, she's telling the truth. She's had five husbands. And she's living with a man who isn't her husband at this point in time. If a commentary is going to leave the subject of living water, they're going to talk about how horrible this woman was because she was divorced. Okay, so I don't want to get stuck there, but I think it's important that we acknowledge a few things. Number one, the text never says she's divorced. That's us making an assumption. She very well could have outlived five husbands. In a day when a tube of Neosporin could have saved a life, you know, when simple antibiotics made the difference between life and death, between, you know, just a little scratch, it, outliving five of your husbands wasn't a huge feat. But there is a likelihood that she could have been divorced. She could not have initiated a divorce. She was not the one who caused the divorce, at least did not legally file for it because women couldn't do that. The men had to initiate that. Also, if she had been an adulteress, she would have been stoned to death. So she wasn't divorced because she was unfaithful. Something else is going on here. We don't know what it is. It's very likely that she was unable to have children or that she had some kind of health issue. Um, even more likely than that, if we look at uh, the, the situation of wives and concubines, she probably did not have a father to negotiate a ketuvah, which was basically a prenup that protected her against divorce. So, and that's the only difference. A lot of people don't realize the only difference between a wife and a concubine is whether or not you have that document in place, whether you have that prenup in place. So if her father, if she had a father who could negotiate this, um, what would happen is if a man divorced her, he would have had to have paid out big bucks because this was to keep her from being destitute. If she didn't have someone to negotiate that on her behalf, she could be kicked down the street for anything. And so we get hung up on how sinful this woman was, and we don't talk about the fact that she had been sinned against. And so if she's divorced that many times, somebody has not lived up to their part of the marital arrangement, which is to love, honor, and obey. I mean, I don't know if they had those vows, what, whatever their wedding promises looked like, but basic care was part of the expectation of all marriages that wasn't being met. And so I think we do a lot of damage to her 
and the story when we want to say, oh, well, Jesus could even love a divorced woman. And that has some ripple effects into um, women in abusive situations today that I won't get caught into, but caught up into. But we need to be careful about how we insert our presuppositions on the text. If she did outlive her husbands, then there is some stigma there because nobody wants to marry their son to a woman whose husband's dropped dead. Is she poisoning them? Is she, you know, what's happening? They, they don't want to give their sons to somebody who's bad luck or cursed. Uh, we see that in the story of Judah and Tamar, where he's got two sons. They both die after they marry Tamar. And he says, I'm not giving her my third one. And if you haven't read that story, go back to Genesis, read that story. Great story about another strong woman who pushes back. Um, so the point of this is that Jesus knows this about her. She doesn't have to tell him. And because he knows it about her, this is what for her confirms that he must be a prophet. And she is willing to hear what he has to say. And she still continues to push back some, but now it's an inner exchange. It's this dialogue going back between the two of them. And so um, she points out that, you know, Jesus' fathers worshipped in Jerusalem. Her fathers worshipped in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, you know, the time is coming. The location's not going to matter. God is looking for people who are going to worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. Now, he does make a slight correction. He says, salvation is from the Jews. Don't get that wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. But the point is, you can still worship God in spirit and truth. And so I love the fact that in the midst of this correction, he doesn't get hung up on her marital status. He corrects her theology and then points her to truth. And he doesn't beat her over the head. It's just a real quick, hey, let's get this right. And now we can move forward. And I think so often we want to to beat people over the head. Do you have it right? Do you, do you renounce all your wicked ways? You know, and that that's a problem. Whenever it's turning people away, can you can you imagine what this woman's response would have been if Jesus had just read her the riot act for the sins of her ancestors and everything that she'd been taught? Because she's a woman who has been raised and trained in a broken system. So I, I think that's so important for today, the ability to <laughs> to love one another and to have a conversation it seems to have disappeared uh, from from at least the American culture. We we are very quick to throw stones and burn the heretic and uh, and that's <laughs> right. not to our to our advantage. I've been reading through Corinthians, I'm preaching through it at my church and we just did the the meats offered to idols section. Uh, you know, is it right or is it wrong? And I love Paul's answer to this. He says, it's not uh, it's not wrong to eat meats offered to idols. It's not wrong to not eat meats offered to idols. What is wrong is to hate your brother. What is wrong is to yeah. cause one another to stumble. And I feel like mm -hmm. a whole lot of keyboard warriors out there, I mean, I love you guys, but uh, slow down a little bit on the name calling. And And I think that if we were we were quicker to talk to one. And I get pushback uh, from people sometimes because I don't only interview people who I completely agree with. And having grown up in right. a tradition where you just don't do that unless like you're a hundred percent even door. I, I sent you my doctrinal statement beforehand and you signed it uh, rather mm -hmm. than just to say, mm -hmm. we're, we're friends and we both love Jesus. Yeah. Let's talk about the scriptures together and to learn from how Jesus approaches this is that he's not saying everything that this lady thinks is correct, but he is saying, you were very right. important, and I want to talk to you about this. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's mm -hmm. such a missing part of church culture today. Absolutely. I, I, I don't understand when we decided people needed to be, you know, sin-free before they could become a part of the body. That was never the the example that was laid out for us. And... You know, maybe if we were a little bit more willing to say, hey, here's some fundamental points we need to agree on if you're going to call yourself a Christian. Sure. And, you know, and when I say fundamental, I'm talking, you know, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Let's begin there. If we can start there and say we both 
agree, or even that you're willing to entertain it as a possibility. Now we have a chance to enter into a greater conversation. Well, and I think like the and, idea of the fundamentals of the faith has been misunderstood by people. And, and pretty much like mm-hmm. the idea of a fundamentalist is suit and tie, pews, steeple, King James, amen, glory, <laughs> hallelujah. And, and very rarely do you actually hear them talk about the actual fundamentals of the faith. The, those are mm-hmm. a real thing. Like I, I'm a hundred percent in favor of the fundamentals of the faith. We, we need to preach this, talk this, understand this, but you're also needing to recognize that there is, is there are people who don't know and they're, they're special. They, they mm-hmm. should be loved. They should be talked to, not talked at, but talked to. And I, I love that yes. Jesus does that because he doesn't assemble the people of Samaria around the well <laughs> and say, I'm now here right. to speak. He goes to an individual person and talks to them. And that's the one thing that it, we, we don't give up our time well as Christians today. Our time is so important. Mm-hmm. We go to church, we sit in our pew, and then we go home. We don't greet our neighbors. Mm-hmm. We don't go out to eat. We're not breaking bread together, fellowshipping together. We're, we're just not nice. Yeah. And we got to change that. <laughs> well, I, th- I think you hit it on the head right there. We're just not nice. And, you know, sometimes one of the hardest things to do is to be nice. And I think if more of us would actually put the effort and the time in to try to be nice, then maybe we might have more of an impact on the world around us. But unfortunately, uh, we're so defensive. And why? Okay, I know this is like almost a rabbit trail. Why are we so defensive? Is our God so small that he needs us to defend him? I, I think we've got that backwards. So I I kind of have a problem with people who want to, well, I was just defending the faith and I was just defending God. Really? Think about that for, for one second. And so sometimes I think instead of defending God, we need to just trust him. And, you know, he says his word will not return void. And maybe if we just start sharing his word kindly, we well, can even, see even in some that, differences. And I, oh, you got me riled up now. I'm going to get in trouble. Here come the emails. <laughs> but, like, it, okay, you're defending the faith. Okay, that that's wonderful. But you said something that you believe to be true. That that's That's great. But you did not say it in a way that was heard. And you did not say it in a way that other people saw Jesus and the message of Christ. Yes. So if that's what you're trying to do, you stink at it. Like the, you, yeah. you yeah. didn't defend the faith. As a matter <laughs> of fact, what you did is you, you, you dug into that root of bitterness that you've got there. You didn't love mm-hmm. that person. And so even if you're going, mm-hmm. like I have conversations with people all the time and I, I think they're wrong and they think I'm wrong. And we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I'll say things like, well, you know, you're wrong, but that's okay. And, you know, we'll talk about <laughs> it. And sometimes they convince me and never do I convince them. But that idea of not only am I defending the faith, but you are my enemy and I will destroy you with my one-liners. And mm-hmm. I, I, will, mm-hmm. I will make mm-hmm. you look foolish. That is, the, I mm-hmm. don't know where you see that in Scripture. And I'll tell you for sure, the world that's watching you isn't seeing Jesus they're seeing a narcissist yeah. try to puff themselves up. And you got to really get yourself under... If you're going to defend the faith, then you need to defend the whole faith. You need to show the kingdom of God and to live it. Mm-hmm. And and to I, I have yet to meet the person who then turns around and talks about the fruit of the Spirit after they've defended the faith. Right. Like where was the right. where was love and joy and peace and long suffering and what you mm-hmm. Well, no 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 no. I don't that's for later. That's for what my personal right. edification. And and I'm gonna get off this, but man, you, you got me all riled up over here. <laughs> now I'm mad and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell people what I think. <laughs> no, I'm I'm not mad. I'm frustrated because as a Christian who has been hurt by church and has been mm-hmm. just I have a hard time trusting people because of 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 my life and the way things have, have gone and the way I've watched Christians behave. And that's mm-hmm. the exact opposite. Uh, Jesus says they'll know you're Christians by your by your love. Uh, yeah. And, and okay, well, your love of truth. Well, that's good. How about you start with the truth that that is a person made in the image of God, and that you should speak to them right. with respect, and you should say what you mean in a clear and, a, and an understandable way, because this idea that you're just mm-hmm. going to throw some truth out there and hope it sticks 
is not an effective way of communicating. And I think Jesus is pretty effective at what he does. And he expects his followers to also be effective. And so I'm not saying don't stand up for the truth, but I am saying please communicate it well. Yes. Yes. Work on the presentation. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Uh, Oh, no, I... Okay, so I know how to get John going. <laughs> oh man, it's I'm done. I'm gonna unmute myself here and step away into the background. <laughs> okay, so now I've forgotten where I am. Um, yeah, so she affirms the Messiah is coming. She she is ready for this. And you know, how often do we come across broken people or people in horrible, sinful situations? Even that that's really what they want is a savior. And, you know, and Jesus acknowledges, hey, she's in the middle of a messed up situation, whether her husband's died, they divorced her, there's a combination, it doesn't matter. She's in a messed up situation that had to have been painful for her. And he says this beautiful words, ego of me, I am, I am God, I am the Messiah you've been looking for. I'm the one who's going to bring resolution and healing into your being, not just your physical marital status, but the totality of who you are. She got that. Why do you think she ran back to the city and said, guys, the Messiah is here? When, if I ever get a chance to witness to someone and share the good news and they are running back to the city telling everybody else, hey, guys, you got to come hear this, then I'll know I've gotten it right. So far, this hasn't happened. But until you reach that point, work on your presentation. Um, so anyhow. <laughs> There's room for improvement. <laughs> always, always, always. And I'm not throwing stones here by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, she goes and evangelizes her town. And because of this, she's known as the first evangelist. She's the first person that Jesus reveals himself as God to. This woman that most of the people, according to everything we've been taught, don't want anything to do with. That even today, we as modern Christian Bible readers look down on her. And we have this kind of level of disgust at her situation because how dare she be so sinful and sit in the presence of Jesus? So I I think that, you know, we need to flip it around and we need to look at the fact that Jesus was meeting a theological imperative and sitting and talking with her. So that's our, our, the basic synopsis of our two main stories. And um, I'm going to try to get moving here because dear Lord, so we, our connections, where are our connecting points? This is where we got to get back to. She, they're both women, okay? So super obvious. They are the women with the two of the most significant first in the Bible. Hannah, the first to prophesy the Messiah is coming. And then the woman at the well who says the Messiah is here. Put those two together. Wow. And it's in the mouths of women, women who have been told for so long to sit down and shut up within the church. Oh my goodness, that tells you we've got something something wrong whenever we don't want to hear the voice of a woman. Now, they make public, life-changing, history-shifting, world-shattering declarations about what is happening and what will happen. They birth entire new eras in their own respective times. In 1 Samuel um, 2, we're told that, um, sorry, 1 Samuel 3, we're told that the word of God was, it was rare, that visions were infrequent. And so up until the point that Hannah's voice breaks on the scene, we don't have prophecy in Jerusalem or in Israel. It's gone silent. And so the fact that she's the one who breaks that silent is huge. silence is huge. The Samaritans, they rejected anything in the Bible that came after the Torah, So they hadn't had a prophet since Moses. And so she breaks the silence. That's amazing. Both women are on the fringes of society. Being a barren woman in Hannah's time would have meant that God had cursed you, that God had turned his back on you because God opens and closes the womb. He has direct control over that. So there had to be something horribly wrong with her. And of course, we're still taught the story of the woman at the well, like there's something horribly wrong with her. So both of these women were misunderstood and undervalued because of their their uh, position in the societies they inhabited. Um, but I felt like these were good connections whenever I was doing this, and and I felt like they were almost there. 
But I really wanted another just, you know, a clincher, something that was undeniable proof that these stories should be put together. And that's when I remembered the point about geography. Names of locations change. Even in the Old Testament, in different time periods, they, as the same place might have a totally different name. And you'll even find points where editors of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, they will go through and say, this town was formerly known as, you know, they, they make it clear. But then when you're going from the Hebrew names to the Greek names, there can be some really big changes. And if you look at both women's accounts, uh, you know, Hannah, we're told she comes from the hill country of Ephraim. We're given the name of the city she's from. We're told that this woman in Samaria, you know, Jesus is near Sakar. He's in the field near the well of Jacob. And if you look at maps and overlay them, what you find is the hill country of Ephraim is Samaria. Wow. They, they go together. It's yeah. I, when I realized that, I'm like, okay, we've got the same spot here. And if you look at the biblical story of what happens in the hill country of Ephraim, and you look at what's going on in this area, this is where Deborah is. This is where when Saul's looking for his donkeys, he runs into the school of prophets. This is where Samuel lives. This is a land known for prophets, and so. It makes total sense that even though this woman may have rejected, the, or her people may have rejected the rest of the Bible as the Jews had it, it was still someplace valued for being able to produce that prophetic voice. So the woman was primed and prepared. And of course, we can't forget Hannah was the very first prophet that we've got going. Well, sorry, not the very first, but she, Hannah is a major prophet from that area. Uh, the first prophet there would have been Deborah, and then uh, then Hannah, then Samuel. But, you know, impressive list of names there. Yeah, you're in good company. So, <laughs> exactly. So, one of the things that really pushed it for me as going, okay, this is really connected here, was trying to figure out who the Samaritans were. Because if you went to Bible college or maybe even your church, when you're told who the Samaritans are, everybody wants to go to Second Kings 17. And this is the story of the Assyrians coming in. They take all the Israelites out of the country. They bring in a, a group of other nations. Uh, there's my list, the Babylonians, the Kutha, the Abba, the Ahmath, and the Sepharim. They come in and they're uh, yes, left the there. the Sepharim that everyone remembers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, that'll win you a Bible trivia game. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, yeah, the important stuff, right? Uh, but... They, they trade out. The Assyrians trade out the inhabitants of the land. And this is part of controlling the people they conquered because it's easier to control people if they're off balance. And what is a better way to be off balance than uprooting them from their homes? And we're told in, in 2 Kings 17, it's a great story. Uh, I think it needs to be a flannel graph, uh, Veggie Tales edition or something. <laughs> uh, the, the, the people who are there, they keep getting killed by lions. I don't know how this did not make vacation Bible school. They keep getting killed by lions. They just keep coming in and killing the people. And finally, the Assyrians have to go back to the king of Assyria and say, hey, this is happening because the people don't know the God of the land. Now, there's some divine council worldview stuff that we could go into here mm -hmm. that's really fun. But they, they specifically say this is why people are getting killed by the lions. So the king of Assyria, what he does is he picks up the priest that he had uh, located in another place, brings them back, and has the priest of God, of Israel, the ones that are rightfully supposed to teach the people how to obey God, to teach these new inhabitants of Israel how to serve God, to teach them the ways of the Torah. And so these people start honoring God. Now they're honoring God and keeping the gods they brought with them. So there's this, this syncretism that's going on. But at least the lions stop killing people. And so that, that was the important thing. And it's believed that these people who were taught the Torah by those priests who were brought back and had been intermarried with whatever Israelites remained in the land, that these became what were known as the Sumerians. And if you look over in Ezra, whenever he's rebuilding the temple, he doesn't want anything to do with them. And um, you know, everybody agrees it's probably because of they're not actually Jews or they're um, only partially Jewish. 
because of uh, the mixed heritage there. And so he says, no, I don't want you. And then the Samaritans go, well, if you don't want us, then we're not going to let you make any progress. And it winds up being this big back and forth trying to get the temple built. And so this kind of starts the break. And we were talking about some of this earlier, but I did find it interesting that Alexander the Great came back to Samaria and said, hey, if you'll help me conquer Tyre, which you should remember the city of Tyre from your Old Testament studies, if you will help me conquer it, I'll rebuild your temple for you. I'll build you a temple in Jerusalem. And so he helps build this temple in Jerusalem. And then John Harkness from the Maccabees and Hanukkah stories, he um, goes and tears it down. And that's about 100 years before Jesus is on the scene. So, you know, that wound was still very, very fresh. And that's kind of where we we have our history of the Samaritans tied up in. But I also found some Samaritan teachings on where they say they came from. And I've got to tell you, I got really excited about this because these are the kinds of things that I geek out over and um, unapologetically. but. I really believe that when we're studying other religions, other people groups, that it's important that we go back to what they say about themselves and understand what they think about themselves. And so the Samaritans don't tell the same story. They don't say that, hey, we're part Jewish and a part Assyrian or part, you know, any of these other people. They they say, no, we're Jews. We, we've always been Jews. We're true Jews. And we didn't get, you know, divided out during the Assyrian conquest. We broke away. And the point in history that they, they go back to from when they broke away is when the corrupt priest, Eli, breaks from Bethel, the place where God's uh, ark had been kept and the tabernacle and all the worship happens, and he moves it to Shiloh. This is the exact time period of Hannah. This is the same time that Hannah is protesting. The system is broken. There's corruption in the priesthood. And matter of fact, God even renounces the house of Eli completely. And I believe that's in First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 3. And the, the Samaritans point to Eli's moving the, the tabernacle and the ark to Shiloh as the big sin that gave them the tip off, hey, this is why we need to get out. So now, of course, everything that follows, um, Samuel, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, any of the prophets, they don't believe that those are true prophets. They don't believe that that's true history, that it was corrupted under the influence of Eli. Now, if you read the Bible, we know that God actually takes steps and says, no, I'm going to correct what's wrong with the house of Eli. Matter of fact, he gets rid of that entire line and brings in another line later on. But I think it's very interesting that Hannah, who is in the Old Testament, saying there's a problem with worship. There's a problem with the way we're taking care of God and, and honoring God. That she's at this point in time where the Samaritan woman would have said, this is where I originated from. This is my history. This is where I start. And Jesus says, okay, you know what? Your system is broken too. But again, we go back to that spirit and truth. And so I see a huge, huge connection. And what I see mostly, um, I've got it written down in my notes here. I want to make sure I say it right. She's the continuation. I see the woman of the well as the continuation and the fulfillment of Hannah's prophecy. She's the one who says, Hannah says, we got to fix this. God is going to fix this. And this woman now gets to experience how that system that started being broken and corrupted back in Eli's day is finally being repaired. And God's faithfulness, even after millennia, for that uh, repair to happen, for that, that completion and the fulfillment to happen. And so there's some beautiful, like, just pieces and parts where we see women standing on the outside of broken systems who have been marginalized and have put, been pushed aside, being willing to push back, being willing to buck the status quo and saying, Lord, there needs to be help. We, we need a solution. And God being faithful to, to create a way for them to receive that solution. 
And I think for a lot of women today, we need to see that, that this is part of our history as women of faith. And it was in the Old Testament. It's still present in the New Testament. And to continue, and I'm not saying go out and be a rebellious wild woman and that all men are bad or anything like that. I think a lot of times people, if you say women need to speak up, they, they think that, you know, instantly Jezebel gets uttered somewhere. But the Bible doesn't show us women going, oh, I'm going to sit in the quiet corner and be quiet, and that's me being faithful. That's me being a good Christian woman. The Bible shows believing women, women who want to worship in spirit and truth, stepping up and speaking truth, mm. stepping up and sharing truth. And I think we need to see more women empowered to do that. When you take out half the team, what, what yeah. else do you expect <clears throat> but defeat? And I think it's important to remember they're both Hannah and this this uh, this woman at the well. Their voices point to Christ. That's what their exactly. voices are doing. And so, mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. for me than worrying about well, who said that, I'm more interested <laughs> in saying what did they say. And and I think right. for the for the church today, there are so many people who who don't believe their voice is worth hearing. That. Yes. Part of being a pastor or part of being a disciple of Jesus is to to come along people and listen and to give them the mm-hmm. honor of 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 your time. And so are people going to always say what you want to hear? No, but that's kind of a bad thing in the Bible. You don't want to heap to yourself teachers having itching ears. You want you want to have conversation and and not just someone who oh. reminds you so much of you that you like them. Uh, that's that's not a positive thing. You want to be able to have diversity and mm-hmm. to be able to value and to listen to what each other are saying. I have really enjoyed just thinking about these two stories overlaid on top of each other. And I'm starting to think, and I'm just going to throw this out there now, but it, I think there are maybe major <laughs> connections to Eve uh, as well in both of these mm-hmm. stories. And so I'm going to throw that out yes. there to my listeners. If If you think that's crazy or if you have thoughts on it, uh, tell us about them. Post them on the Facebook, or maybe you've got a thought in a different direction. I would love to hear your thoughts and what's going on in your life. I also need you to all email Emily and tell her to immediately start podcasting again uh, because she's taken off way too long. So, Nathan, that means you too. But uh, I'd like to thank you, my friend, for coming on and teaching us and uh, just sharing uh, what you've been uh rambling about in your studies as you've been thinking and walking beneath the trees of Scripture. So thank you so much, Emily, for your time. Thank you.